Welcome to Home Office. I'm Mark Lazier. And I'm Sharice Slatson. Hello, Sharice. Hey, Mark. Tell me about your vacation to Halifax before we jump into the show for this week. It was awesome, man. It was really, no, it was a good time. Um, lots of shopping, uh, lots of walking and exploring the downtown. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was a great time away. And you were, then part of the reason I asked is because uh, you were the, uh, the, in the brave new world of the Atlantic bubble, you were the first Huddle employee to, to test the new boundaries of our ability to travel around the region. Yeah, we found it pretty smooth. Um, we had no problem. Uh, we left super early in the morning to get to Halifax because we, of course, were reading about the huge lineup. So we left incredibly early at a ridiculous hour. Um, but we got through fine. And on the way back, we, um, even though we were, you know, the province released like this form that, you know, even if you're a New Brunswick returning home, you had to, you had to fill out and we did that and we were ready, you know, but we were just flagged through. Like they just asked, like, are you from New Brunswick? Yep. Can we see your ID? Yeah, here you go. And they just put us in the line with no car. So it was like literally less than five minutes in line to get back home. So it was pretty smooth sailing for us. I know it hasn't been like that for everyone, but yeah. Well, I know, too, there was obviously a lot of hype uh, around the Atlantic bubble and the ability to, for us to travel to other parts of the Maritimes and, and sort of get the tourism economy going again. Mm. But I, I got the sense from just the things that I was reading and people I was talking to that um, that uh, the first weekend was really a lot about, you know, families reconnecting. Yeah. Um, and I know that you, you went there as a weekend getaway. So you stayed in a hotel, you went to the restaurants in Halifax and the bars. What, what was it like? Like, was the hotel full? No, it wasn't actually. It was, uh, there's, there's definitely other guests there, but they, the hotel was definitely operating at a lower capacity. Uh, we stayed at the Hollis on Hollis Street right in downtown. And for instance, like they, their restaurant wasn't, wasn't open. Um, and you know, when we got some, when we asked for something, we brought up like to the room, like often it was a person from the front desk. Like, so they were definitely like operating on limited staff, but I found the service to be just as great. They were just as accommodating. It was wonderful. Uh, but you can tell they're, you know, not everyone's kind of flooding the hotels just yet. I don't think. Right. Yeah. So and you I, had the hotel yourself? Yeah. <laughs> no, we did. There's definitely <laughs> some other, there's definitely some other guests. Um, uh, but no, it was, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't packed. It definitely wasn't packed. And I found too, going around, like in terms of like visiting the restaurants and the retail stores and stuff like that, it was very similar to New Brunswick. Like I found a lot of them have similar uh, measures in place, you know, hand sanitizer at the door, you know, uh, social distancing, um, everyone wearing masks, that sort of thing. So I found it very similar and it felt very safe. Um, and it was still it was still a fun time. Um, definitely a lot of the cocktail bars and stuff, you know, we we're hoping to go to, you know, closed a bit earlier. So we had to make sure we got out, got out on time. Um, and a lot of times, too, with those places as well. My friend who I was with, she you spent she lived there for a year. She went to university there. Like, you know, the nature of bars are always like, you know, walking around, meeting people, socializing. But now, like. You're kind of assigned to your table. You can sit with your friends or whatever, but like you're assigned to your table and you can't get up and can't get up and go wander around, which I, we were totally fine with because you know there's downside to that kind of bar culture. But uh, you know, but no, it was uh, it was a really fun time, and I'm really glad. Um, I'm really glad to get away. It was a nice nice trip. Yeah, I mean, and it's all part of this. Um, you know, kind of slow reopening in the economy and slowly getting kind of back to normal and. I mean, we're, we're kind of lucky in a lot of ways, obviously, right? Because 
you know, the Maritimes was, you know, spared, spared the worst of this. And I know obviously they went through uh, a terrible time for a while at, at, at Northwood. So uh, the long-term care facility in Halifax. So obviously, you know, the Maritimes have experienced some real tragedy around this. Um, but we're one of the regions in North America and around the world that we are starting to make our, our way out of this. And we're starting to have conversations like the Atlantic bubble and opening things up for tourism. Um, you know, you and I are now sitting here back in our offices again, mm -hmm. right? Having face-to-face -face conversations and uh, interactions. And, and, you know, to segue, Charisse, to the subject for the segue. conversation, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, what, what we want to talk about today is, is slowly a, a part of that reopening process and, and starting to look, you know, toward the future. And, uh, you know, maybe one day we'll have a you know, home office podcast that actually won't be about COVID-19 at all. <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs> someday. Wow. Um, and I know that's true of all of us, uh, you know, in, in the media and, and the conversations that we're all having, you know, around the supper table and um, in our day-to-day -day lives, we're still preoccupied by this, mm. but we are starting to make our way out of this. And and one of the ways, Sharice, that we're, you know, making our way out of this is looking at the will, the ways in which we're kind of kind of reinvent how we operate right and and new ways of working and new ways of structuring businesses and we're going to continue to have these conversations and one of the conversations that i wanted to have uh you know for today's podcast is a lot around you know how work is going to look different for us right and and so we've all been working at a home for the last little while and we're slowly making our way back in into offices but we learned a lot in that time when we were home Right? We, we learned about when we needed to be in the office and when we didn't and how efficient we could be working remotely versus the office. And we're learning about striking new balances, right? Because I know probably for you, Sharice, there's, you've actually worked quite a bit at home. You, you can get a lot done. Right? Yes, to a point. To a point. <laughs> but, but it's funny with Sharice though, because I tease her because Sharice really likes to, to work out of home a lot because... You, 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 there's peace and quiet, right? Yeah, I find it's a lot easier to, to write sometimes. Mm. But I, one thing I did learn from COVID-19 and our time being forced to work from home is that I can only do it for so long. You know yes. what I mean? I don't think I could ever... And like we couldn't, we didn't even have the option to go work at a cafe or anything like that. Like I don't know if I could just work from home. It got it started getting to me after a while. I think what I appreciate more is having that flexibility, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people are realizing that too. Mm -hmm. This is your way of saying you missed us. Yes, I did. And you weren't sure you were going to. Oh no, I knew. <laughs> I, I I did. I did. I did a lot, yeah. but. That's another conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like to tease Sharice, but I, but she gives as good as she gets. Um, so the conversation that I had that uh, we're going to listen to today, Sharice, is uh, between me and um, a, a university professor at, at UNB. His name is um, Rob Moyer, and he's a, a business professor, uh, an economics professor. And uh, Wendy Keats, who's the executive director of the um, Cooperative uh, Enterprise Council of New Brunswick. And I wanted to talk to them today because a lot of our conversation is about how we're going to restart our businesses and how we're going to pivot. Uh, a, a lot of those conversations that we're having are, are profit-centered um, and around just kind of restarting that economic engine. Uh, but the kind of conversation I wanted to have with Wendy and Rob was a lot of, about a lot of the kind of social questions around the economy 
and around the nature of work. So, you know, restructuring our workplaces so they're, they're, they're more friendly for people that need more flexible arrangements, right, in terms of working remotely, working from home. Um, maybe some of the economic opportunities of New Brunswickers who could work remotely for companies that might be headquartered in Toronto, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's all open for discussion now. Um, I wanted to have a conversation about, you know, some of the really hard value conversations we've had during COVID-19, like, um, you know, the pivot to an economy that's more oriented towards um, being friendly toward the environment, right? Um, so that move away, not, not an abrupt one, but that move away from fossil fuels to, uh, to, to renewables. And because we all know that, I mean, one of the side benefits of this pandemic, and again, it's, it's a horrible thing that we wish had never happened, but the air is cleaner, mm, yes. right? Because yeah. jets are grounded and people aren't in their cars as much. Um, so that's forcing us to have these these kinds of conversations around around the environment and 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 that path going forward. Uh, in the midst of all this, uh, we also have the Black Lives Matter movement emerging, and you know, having rallies in the thousands in the Maritimes uh, that happened um, out of out of the um, you know the, the the tragedy that happened in the United States, and then the protests that broke out across that country. But we ended, that forced us to have these conversations around diversity and, and whether or not we're doing enough to welcome immigrants and international students and what our workplaces look like. So for me, it's a lot. Of, I wanted to have that kind of conversation that kind of tackled all of those, those questions, right? And I knew that Rob and Wendy were perfect for that because they're both business-minded people. Uh, but but they're very socially minded as well, and they very much see economics as being something that's not just grounded in profits and shareholder value, um, but also in happiness and well being. Mm-hmm. And so I knew they were the perfect people to to have for this this kind of uh, conversation. So you know, I uh, Rob ended up coming in here and sitting down with me in the office, uh, and uh, and we had Wendy. Um, on, on the line uh, from from Dorchester, uh, and interestingly enough, she was on a satellite connection because, as you'll find out, she lives off the grid. Really? Yes. Oh, fascinating. And and, and the only other thing, because I'm you know I, I'm a little bit um, yeah self conscious about it, Sharice. The only thing other thing that I bring up before we go to the conversation with Rob and Wendy is that we're all like a little bit older, and mm-hmm. Wendy admitted to being in, in the year before retirement. And Rob and I, I'm not going to say how old Rob is, but he's around my age, I think, and I'm 51. And the conversation that we ended up having, and we didn't mean for this to happen, it, it inevitably gravitated towards um, a feeling of, of optimism around change, largely centered in the fact that the younger generation seems ready for it. So we kind of had that opposite conversation of, you know, cranky older people complaining about the generation behind coming up behind us. And it was more uh, a sense of optimism. And Wendy actually said something really interesting near the end of the conversation that really struck Rob and I is that, you know, in the year of her retirement and for somebody who's gone through a lot, seen a lot of change, um, she says she's never been more optimistic, which is a big statement for somebody who's in, about to retire. Right? The kids are all right. I think the kids are all right, Sharice. And because it, <laughs> it's funny because you get, I mean, I'm interested in your perspective on this. You get like at 51, I've had 30 years, 
30 plus years of, of people saying change is right around the corner mm. and it's, it still moves, seems to move really slow. Yeah. So to think that we might be in a period where the combination of the right generation with a set of circumstances that kind of just propels us forward more quickly. Right. I don't know how you feel about... I'll believe it when I see it, but I also, I do feel, I feel like, I feel like millennials, like my generation is pretty jaded. Like we've had a lot of stuff thrown at us, like 9-11, two financial crises, crises, uh, global pandemic, but I love Gen Z's attitude and I just feel like they're just like killing it and like they're ready to change the world and like us and Gen X are like, yes, do you need anything? Like, can we help you? You know, go get them. Like, and that's sort of my attitude. But yeah, no, I definitely agree. Yeah. I feel like there's definitely uh, what we're experiencing right now, the good and the bad is going to have a lasting impact, I think. And we won't know until years from now looking back. But Right. But yeah. hopefully we're, we're, we're on the cusp of, of, of some real accelerated change. Right. Um, but on that note, let's, let's go to the conversation with uh, Wendy and Rob. Hi, Rob. Hi, Wendy. Hey. Hi, Mark. Thank you very much for joining me. And uh, actually, uh, Rob, uh, just to kind of situate us, Rob is sitting across uh, the desk from me in uh, in Huddle's office. Physically distanced. Yes, of course. And we actually had a take one on this conversation yesterday, but Rob Rob lives on the uh, King's Peninsula in rural New Brunswick. And uh, we had some internet connection problems, Rob. And, you know, it, it, it got me to thinking that... Um, this is something that we, you know, we need to iron out because one of one of the conversations I'd love to have with you guys today is is around, um, you know, the future of work and and the possibility that some of this work is going to be remote, so from our homes. Uh, it also is going to be about companies being able to possibly employ people in rural parts of the province and having to deal with their internet connections. Yeah, well, I, I think you're right there. Uh... And as a prof uh, preparing to enter into uh, next next year uh, with a degree of trepidation and a full house with kids in public school, kids trying to attend university, uh, and a wife who is actively employed too, um, you know, I really I, I'm in the position now where I don't think I can actually operate out of the house, even if I look at the other grand alternative, which is going with uh, with a satellite-based system. So, you know, these these are just not options if what you're intending on uh, doing has a an active and important video conference component. There, and we're close. There are much more remote regions, and and you know. That said, I'm I'm remote, but I'm not that remote. And there are places in northern Canada that are have much worse. So I'm, I'm good, but it wouldn't work for this. No. And you know, I'm wondering, um, too, I, I, I don't know about you too, but I've become, I was very idealistic for the first few weeks of the pandemic in the sense of, you know, working from home and we had our kids at home and they were, you know, on track with their schoolwork and, and my wife, Janet and I were able to work successfully out of home and you know zoom meetings and and corresponding on different various chat programs and the levels of product productivity that existed and was feeling really good about this and thinking wow we are making this real shift here and and then and then of course you know the technical hiccups started to happen and then and then also the the lack of human connection right Mm -hmm. so 
Zoom meetings and and phone chats and and text based chats through various you know software platforms. You starting to see just kind of that it's it's not all what it's meant cracked up to be. Yep. It, well, the 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 regular problem inside any institutional framework where emails end up causing wars. Uh, and I remember being in, in watching some of these evolve and saying, look, let's take this offline and into a, into a personal environment because um, some of what people say in an email, you, you don't have tone, you don't have facial recognition to, to understand, you know, wow, that twinkle in the eye meant that wasn't serious. That was, uh, you know, them poking the bear, which is fine. Uh, but how do you convey that? And so you start to realize, uh, you know, this is where my communications folk that do research really get it. But I would think it's, it's also true. Um, I've tried to organize things in communities via email or phone. And unless you really know the person, you just don't get. And, and I think the video is a little bit better, but it's not really there. And, uh, you know, when you do community work, uh, which, uh, you know, Wendy, you're, you're really experienced in, that's where, you know, it, there's nothing that really coordinates as well as being able to get together as people. So what you're telling us, Rob, is that you found yourself in some situations over the last few months that were caused by communications breakdowns. Oh, it, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it happens. It happens. It happens regularly, right? And it's life. You get by. Yeah, see, Wendy, here's the thing. Rob can see my facial cues now, and he can see, you know, me start to smile because I want to know more. Um, it's, so, Wendy, tell us a little bit about, about your situation. Where are you right now? Yeah, well, this is an interesting discussion, Mark, because I happen to be out in the middle of the woods. I actually live off the grid and have for the past 15 years and have worked from home um, in all that time and uh, have to use uh, satellite internet, have had all of the problems that uh, Rob is talking about really exasperated by limiting bandwidth because all of a sudden everybody's home working and having to conduct, you know, up to six Zoom calls a day and joined by both phone and by um, internet so that I can try to take advantage of both, but it's actually an issue that we're looking at um, in all aspects of the work that we do. How do you effectively engage people in this new way forward, which, you know, we know a fair amount of that is going to be online, um, particularly given the challenges that we have around that. So not only are there bandwidth and, and other issues, but when we look at communities and people that are marginalized and perhaps don't have access at all, um, either to the internet or perhaps to computers or even a quiet place that they can participate in meetings. So yeah, it's definitely an issue moving forward that is going to be, I think, the center of a lot of discussion. So tell me, that, you know, to kind of start this conversation, what, what are some of, the, some of the major shifts that you, you see, Rob? coming out of coming out of COVID-19 in terms of how we work, you know, as employees, how, you know, companies could change moving forward? Um, 
I think one of the biggest things we've seen, uh, there was a belief that uh, unless the taskmaster master was standing above you uh, with, with, with the, uh, you know, with pen and paper in hand, checking to see where you're meeting your metrics, you know, that, that physical time clock, were you there working? And I saw you at your computer and you didn't have uh, uh, solitaire open. It doesn't, we're still getting work done. Work can be done remotely. We do need connectivity. The, uh, we've got a few projects I'm working on at the university around digital divide, especially around marginalized communities, um, be that lack of computers or not just we don't have a computer, we don't have internet access. Um, but those are, in theory, technologically solvable. We can get past that. It's going to take money. It's going to take um, creative thinking. But I think there was a trust issue over what it meant to work. And, uh, you know, there are some jobs you have to be in place. You can't cook the hamburger without being next to the grill. You can't, uh, you know, I toured a factory recently. You know, you can't make things if you aren't there making them. They can be augmented by by automation or assisted with machinery, but people physically need to be there. But then there's a large number of jobs that don't necessarily need that day-to-day -day interaction. They, that enhances them. Um, we're still struggling with what that might mean in the education sector. But, you know, all those mid-level managers in Toronto, why aren't look at the property prices here with fiber off one of the we used to be one of the leading uh jurisdictions in north america when we were still uh nbtel uh in terms of voip in terms of uh, uh fiber optic connection so i mean we could be using that we could you know and when a meeting was demanded in central canada or western canada you know we have airports we know how to use those things. So it's not like we can't do the face to face if we have to, but I think there's a lot of work we can find better ways to do and save people, huge corporations too, huge amounts of money, not building the big building downtown Toronto. It, the, the, the trust issue that you raise is a really interesting one, right? Because we, we were forced into this situation, right? So you had office offices and office buildings full of people doing jobs in cubicles, in offices, closely overseen by people. Um, and so the whole, the whole idea of like losing that degree of control and dispersing people is really a lot for a lot of companies. And what I curious to know your thoughts too on this, Wendy, what I found, and I know you, you've been working remotely for a long time, Wendy, so it's different for you, but what I've heard over and over again from people is the surprise that in some ways people are more productive working remotely. They're not traveling as much. They, they aren't surrounded by people all the time so they can be more on task. Um, now, again, that brings up, uh, you know, obviously really, you know, rich discussions around. So how, you know, you can't just replace that person to person contact. You can't, it's, it's so critical to have that. Um, but that it doesn't need to be there all the time. 
I absolutely agree. And, you know, I think at the Corporate Enterprise Council, we've always used that approach of trust. And, uh, you know, we absolutely find that people are more productive when you use this approach of, you know, here's here are the outcomes that we need. Kind of you get it done when, you know, when you can, when it works best for you, because people also work better at different times and they, not everybody fits that eight to five mold. And, um, and there's a lot of ways that they work better together. There's all kinds of different personality types and styles and ways that people work together. And I think there's always a need for a certain level of personal interaction, but there's a ton of stuff that can get done just by people, um, you know, working from homes and working in, in their own ways. And so we've, you know, found it very, a very effective means to just use that. But it's always interesting to me when I hire new staff and I tell them about this approach and they're almost like, are you serious? Like it's on the honor system and, you know, you're just going to trust me. And, uh, but I do think that's the way of the future. And I think that those are also the expectations of millennials today. Um, they want to be trusted. They want to be allowed to do things in the way that works best for them. So I think this is actually, um, a really good new way forward. So almost like, um, you know, uh, I mean, a lot of this was 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 forced by by the pan- pandemic, and parts of it will remain, but also you know aspects of work will change. But from what I hear you saying, it, it may align with a value shift with the way people want to work anyway. I absolutely, yeah. I think that this whole impact of COVID has a lot to do with a shift in, um, in not a shift in values. I think these have been emerging and, and consistent values for a long time. But they've really risen to the forefront and people are demanding a different way forward. Um, you know, they're, they're much more focused on local economies and, um, you know, the, the environment and um, democratic control and, you know, uh, fairness and equity and inclusion and all of those kinds of things. And you know, there's there's not really a question as to whether that's going to be part of uh, the new economy. Um, it's it's actually being demanded by people at this point, and it's not going to go away. And if I can add to that, I mean, I, I think your your identification of the millennial generation and the, and the following generations as as uh, demanding that uh, you look at our baby boomers uh, getting ready to retire on mass. Um, so where are your next workforce. I mean, the reality is if as a workforce, you can't employ people because they won't come to you because you won't adopt values that they are willing to abide by. We're seeing this uh, doctors are a good example where they say, you know, I don't think I really want the hundred hour work week. I, I mean, it's one thing if it was a pandemic, but you know, on a day-to-day basis, really, you need me every week, a hundred hours a week. Uh, that's crazy. And, and you know, they're in the one topic I don't think we mentioned in that, and I think you covered a lot, Wendy. But there's that that sort of wellness, mental health aspect. Um, weirdly, I see more of my family now. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, my kids are at home, and yeah, we struggle, and there's a lot of Fortnite being played. Um, 
and we had ideals and they got shifted, but you know, Toby's learned and we get on and, uh, but then we can do things like we can all decide, Oh, let's go out and go to the breakout room. Let's do a thing as a family. And that's actually weirdly easier to organize. And you know what? That means I didn't get to this data set I wanted to right now, but I can do that at night. I can do that at a different time because I'm always kind of at home. So, so, you know, we, we still have to set our boundaries and that I think is going to be a challenge, but I really, you know, that idea that we're, we're part of our houses and that's something that, that is neat and new here that people can get by with that. Yeah, no. And uh, we, we found exactly the same thing. And I think you, it takes a bit, took a bit of time to adjust to it. Right. Like, and, and, but I think, um, you think back to uh, commute times being cut down. Uh, actually, my, my kids, uh, for better or worse, better understand what I do now. <laughs> yeah, because um, we're we're all like working so closely together now. Uh, but it's but it's made us made us realize what needs to be done in the office, but what can be done just as easily outside the office. Mm -hmm. I, I'm really curious from you know listening to both of you though around. Like it's either like it's either there's a value shift happening or or the situations we've been forced into have made those values seem more important or you know predominant, right? Just in in terms of and because I, I really do think go back to this trust issue, Wendy, and I know you worked this way for for a long time, but we talk so much about measuring the value of people's work according to you know their metrics and, and output. And those things can be measured easily independent of whether I sit in, at a desk at home or in a co-working space, right? Because this is another kind of workplace that's becoming mm -hmm. you know, more, more predominant now. Or whether I sit in, uh, in an office 10 feet away from a boss. Yeah. There too is a democratization in the sense of, you know, Mark, you have a good way of solving things. I would never have thought about that. If I'm your boss and I'm watching over your shoulder, then this is the way you go about doing this because look, I've got a, a piece of paper that tells me that's the steps to getting it done. Um, and and uh, an uncle of mine once taught me about shop floor management where you actually ask the people on the shop floor what's working, what's not. And you sort of bring them in rather than say, but you know, some engineer over here who never looked at the shop floor, they get it. Well, they have input, but they don't get it. They weren't down there. And that's where I see, you know, the university has been an interesting microcosm of that for years. You know, this is other than, you know, a few restaurant gigs, that's where I was. And I was always on that academic side of things. And so you had half, well, the vast majority of what the institution does is, uh, you know, yeah, you got to be here for classes because that's how we do it. But, you know, afterward, go and get your research done, go away and get this stuff done. And you were left be productive in some magical way. And then you looked at a lot of staff members and it was like, well, no, you need to be here, uh, arrive. If you get here at eight, we'll let you go at four. But, you know, if, you, if you're going to come in at nine and you need to do a doctor's appointment with your kid, then how are you making up those hours? And it's like, yeah, but anything getting done in that one hour that they couldn't have crammed it in elsewhere? Or what, you know, so, so, you know, whereas I was a beneficiary of that 
sort of system of we trust you. And now it's even more find a way to get your courses delivered. Um, there was a large chunk of the institution that wasn't that way. And yet we're even finding it over in that environment. There are people who can be quite productive at home and effectively they're working a four day week. And, you know, maybe it's better overall. We aren't trying to ram into their throats. No, you got to work five days just because that's, you know, here on the hiring form, it says you work 37.5 hours and, you know, show me how you account for it by accounting. I mean, you need to be in a door that I know where it is. And at surprise notice, I can walk in and see you. Yeah. And where, where it kind of lead, leads me to in terms of my thinking is around um, come to the, some of the negative stuff around that too, especially around mental health. Um, that it's about, for me, it's become about finding the balance in terms of work. Uh, because I've, you know, I've really noticed it and I'm sure you guys have too, um, as this thing has dragged on the negative, uh, repercussions of being too isolated from people has, you know, really become, you know, something that, that I think quite a bit about. Uh, so I've come to that place of trying to figure out that balance. So when, when do I need to be in, in my office around people? When do I need to be interviewing people face to face? And what can, when kind of just be fine to be by Zoom or the platform we're using with you, Wendy. Um, it's like striking that balance, I, I find. And Wendy, I'm curious, like, do you find that given that you've worked this way a long time, do you find some of these epiphanies people are having amusing? What's your take? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really interesting from a number of angles, this whole discussion, because it strikes me that a lot of the shift that had already been in occurring in it and has been exasperated by COVID um, has more to do with the, the quality of the contributions that people make and benefiting in some way or being acknowledged in some way for those contributions. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, that we really promote this whole idea of collective ownership. And there's a ton of studies that have shown that when people are, are part of something where, you know, they're allowed to contribute in the ways that are meaningful to them, and then they benefit from, you know, the profits or, um, you know, the outcomes that they're far more productive, they're far more engaged and, they, they enjoy work and their mental health is better. There's all these benefits of when people can, you know, work in a way that both is comfortable for them and, you know, meets their needs and their values, but also, you know, they actually reap the benefits. So, in, you know, the ordinary office job, you go in, you do your job, doesn't matter really how much the company makes. Um, you're still being paid X number of dollars an hour. So it really limits the um, motivation. Um, so I think that that's a, another shift that we're really, uh, have had been seeing again, this is all stuff that's been happening, but it's just really coming to the forefront because of COVID. Um, and these opportunities have come about for people to demonstrate you know, what they can do um, on their own without being micromanaged. And, uh, you know, figuring out, uh, you know, benefiting from that, feeling really good about being able to do that. It, it, it's interesting, Wendy, because I think, you know, I, I, when I think about these things a lot, I, just, I tend to think of, okay, you work for a company or you own a company. And 
different stresses come with that, right? So if you're an employee, there's, there can be a loss of control, right? Where you feel like you're, you know, serving somebody else's ends. And then on the other end, ownership brings with it all those responsibilities and those stresses of, of, of knowing that you're ultimately responsible for a bottom line. And, uh, and, but it, but it can create this kind of like, um, it's almost like a binary thing, right? It's either one or the other. Um, do you find that there, there's a bit of a shift in attitude in terms of finding that middle ground where you can more effectively have, uh, multiple owners or cooperative situations in terms of the ownership structure? Like, are you seeing this shift? Oh, yeah. The, you know, cooperatives are, are growing all of the time and there's a, a, a lot more interest in them. There, You know, they've, there's about 9,000 co-ops in Canada and I think it's one of the best kept secrets, um, you know, in the country. Uh, they generate billions in economic activity. Their their business structure is more resilient after the 2008 financial crisis. Co-ops actually grew at three times the rate of the general economy and created six times as many jobs. You know, there's all kinds of studies that show they're twice as likely to succeed in both the short and the long term. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that people are engaged. You know, they are collective owners. And they share the risks, they share the, you know, the, um, the costs, and then they also share in, in the profits and the outcomes. And so uh, it's growing all the time. We cannot keep up um, to the demand. And, you know, cooperatives are one model, again, of collective ownership, but, you know, there, there are a number and, uh, you know, it just, uh, it's really caught on and, they're also based on a set of fundamental principles, you know, that are around democracy and participation and um, autonomy and self-help and cooperation. And again, these are values that a lot of people hold and um, really, I think, have been seeking out more and more as, you know, our economy has really shifted away from, you know, even small and medium-sized businesses to you know, a lot of control of our economy is by large and foreign corpora uh, corporations where people and planet are not the major consideration. It's how much profit can they make. And, you know, that's been uh, responsible for everything from rising inequality and poverty through to environmental disasters. And people are just tired of it. They want fairness. They want, you know, to be part of something. And that applies to their businesses as well. Can, are there, can you think of examples of New Brunswick ones that really stand out for you that would kind of bring some of those points home? Well, we've got a couple of hundred, uh, you know, co-ops in New Brunswick. There's everything from, you know, credit unions. We have credit unions all across the province. They're, they're not-for-profit cooperatives where, you know, no money leaves, uh, leaves the economy. Um, there's renewable energy cooperatives. There's lots of cooperatives in local food and agriculture, you know, where farmers are pooling their resources in order to compete in fields that they, they couldn't otherwise compete in. Um, you know, there's daycare cooperatives, there's housing cooperatives, there's worker co-ops, like really, you name an industry and there's cooperatives in it. And it's all about, you know, this pooling of resources 
and sharing the work and then sharing in the profits and keeping the money at home circulating in the local economy and building local communities. You know, we're a, a rural province in New Brunswick. Um, a lot of our small communities have been struggling and a lot of the solutions to those struggles are for people to work collaboratively together. And we're seeing that just COVID has just been such an interesting experience in collaboration. You know, I've been doing this um, work in the community for 40 years now, and I have never before seen the level of collaboration. And it happened immediately. Uh, and I remember being on a call early COVID days with um, Food for All, the Provincial Food Security Network, you know, where they were uh, talking about trying to keep people informed and be strategic in the response. And there were 125 people on that first call. And they were just all talking about how they could meet the needs of the community and uh, how they could work together. And government um, is at the table in a way that it's never been there before. And that's very promising. You know, they're looking to the community for, you know, answers. And the community has the answers. They've just never really been asked before, taken seriously. Because so often all the conversations happen, you know, either internally or with large corporations that can supply things en masse um, coming from China rather than things produced locally. If I can add, um, university experience, uh, we're seeing that too. We're seeing it with students. They, the kinds of job experiences they want, whether it's co-ops or experiential education or even class projects, they don't buy into the myth that becoming that cog in the wheel and doing the thing that always got done and, you know, the, the, the supervisor checking off boxes to say was on computer X number of hours. Um, they're motivated by wanting to contribute. Like, how is this making it better? It might make it better by inventing something or innovating something new. And you're seeing the rise of all these programs around innovation, but not innovation purely from a business point of view, but social innovation, uh, creation of you know, new theaters or new ways of expressing oneself. Um, we're seeing students. Uh, I, I want to remain here in the city of St. John for an international student one day. Uh, he, he said, because I started talking about the Marsh Creek project with ACAP, St. John. And now I want to see if they ever do it. I want to I want to build my community. I want to be part of the community. We're seeing um, increased demand, you know, yeah, but what not-for-profits are working? Are there places I can get that would not necessarily just be the big corporation where I can practice the accounting I've always learned, um, but rather how can I contribute to, you know, building better uh, women's shelters or um, doing food security? We've got a student out right now dealing with... Uh, uh, organizing 3D printers to build mask frames uh, because with COVID-19, we're all going to have to wear masks. Well, you know, it takes a lot to sew these things, but we can 3D print a mask frame in, you know, a few minutes. And uh, what are the opportunities there? And then there's a company looking to, you know, I'm hoping to have a conversation with them next week. It's, do we have an industrial partner that can ramp up the speed and still get community printers who want to follow volunteer that yeah I put my printer on and at the end of the week here's 20 frames for you and 
we'll pick those up and add them to the grand mix. I think that that's, it's not a shift. I, I, I think it was latent. It was there, but there was a myth, maybe it's the wrong word. There was a belief that somehow we were doing that as expressed through corporate interest. And I think uh, whether it's climate change is a, a big failure that we're, you know, economists, we know this. It's an externality. Ask my libertarian friends, ask me, left-wing Rob. We know it is an externality. We know it's a problem of the market. We know it's it's going to be an effect. Well, what are we going to do about it? How do we, and, and that's where I'm seeing that youth market. We know that income inequality is a problem. And, you know, is it a, is it a crisis of, of, of opportunity? How do we deal with these problems? Well, they actually want to, they don't believe the myth that the corporate structure will solve it de facto. So what else is there? And it was there always. I, I, I agree with you, Wendy. I don't, I don't know that it's new. I just think people have been confronted with it for so long. They, they're asking serious questions and then going ahead of us, leading us to the answers. Like, we'll do it differently. Catch up when you're ready. And, and when I think it's worth kind of pausing and getting your thoughts too, like you know, to putting this in context, and this is true of you, Wendy, but it's true of you, Rob, you're both working with people who want to make businesses work, right? And and so with your student group, um, you've got people enrolled in the business program, you have mm -hmm. people in the MBA program. So uh, it, you're seeing idealism, but you're also seeing wanting to take that idealism and and make businesses and, and find solutions that serve greater goals than, than just, just turning a profit. I don't want to say just turning a profit because when we get back to the, to the three P's, right. profit's still there, right? So it's still about yeah. operating sustainable, profitable companies. Yeah. I, I don't think they've thrown the, the, it's not like, you know, we, we need to adopt a model that, that uh, we hand all, all control over to the government. And say, tell us what decisions to make, and we'll march and get them done. That full planned economy. Um, so, so, so it's not like let's reject the market outright. Let's reject some of the stuff the market brings. But there certainly is not. We aren't equitable to the environment, and consequently, the mechanism there to the future generation that inherits the environment that. Uh, you know, while we were already seeing degree days over 30 consistent in New Brunswick in May this year, uh, you know, at what point do we say the data is starting to be not just a little bit random, but we're, we're yeah, maybe some causal links are here. Um, and also around income equity. I mean, in the end, do we, do we worship the economy and the market in our primarily the, the form we solve our economy, or do we, is it a tool? And one of many tools you make to solve this, this problem of how do we get through life together? And I think you're seeing that sort of, it reminds me of, you know, wow, ShamWow is neat, but the ShamWow doesn't do everything. And, uh, you know, so it's not for all types of cleanup and it's not, it certainly doesn't dice vegetables. And lo, lo and behold, we have to dice vegetables and somebody else comes up with a vegetable dicer and we go, oh, wow, but it doesn't solve everything. 
And, you know, uh, I, Rod Hill and uh, Tony Myatt in the province of New Brunswick, both with UNB, uh, have written an anti-economics textbook. Uh, and one of the things all of us point out, and I certainly, you know, I've written first-year textbooks, uh, the paucity of information around the formation of a cooperative. You know, we hop from limited liability corporations, single ownership, blah, blah. There is this mention that a co-op exists, it could exist, and then they move on. But we also ignore monopsonies, where, you know, a, a single buyer of a good rather than the single seller. So while we'll dig into the single seller, we don't really, it's a casual mention, oh yeah, there's this other issue that you should. So, so, you know, I think the time is right and the students, uh, the young people I find are leading us. They're, they're, they're pioneers, they're people who were ahead of the curve, um, you know, and my, when I've met Wendy and I've met others that were leading that way, but yeah, I mean, at the end, I have to eat. So there's a balance there, but they think that the balance has gone too far to making the money and not necessarily feeling that, 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 but I want there to be a difference. I want it to be better because me making that money, not just, I walked away from lots. Right. And, and you know, it, it also makes me think, and it's, it's, you know, old conversation here around when we, we talk about business and, and, and the environment. It always in New Brunswick. It always feels like an either or conversation. We're we're talking about forestry. We're talking about you know oil, oil and gas. Um, you know, and and the issue that you know I haven't raised yet. We'd be curious to know your thoughts are. What a big story last week. You know, was the loss of two hundred fifty jobs at at Irving Oil and and what that means and and the but the but the reason why I bring that up is because it, it always feels like an either or thing and I saw some of that in some polling that was released by narrative research last week that that showed that coming out of um, covid 19 you know a majority of respondents would rather see us um, you know solve the economic question rather than tackle climate change mm-hmm. but again right the, it's positioned as a question of will you either have this or you either have that and, and that's why it strikes me as being one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you too is, you know, for your perspective, Wendy and Rob's perspective, you know, from the economics department, the business department at, at, at UNB is, is finding our way into that more complicated conversation where, yes, we do need to talk about the future of Irving oil, you know, and as an example in the fossil fuel economy and pipelines and, and, and Alberta, we, yes, we, we do need to have that conversation, but there's also this other conversation that's taking place around different ownership structures, Wendy, for companies. Um, the different kinds of companies that exist in New Brunswick around, you know, tackling climate change issues and wind energy. Um, you know, so for me, it's a lot about having that conversation, both more broadly, but also more specifically, right, in, the, in terms of the companies that we can talk about in the province that are doing different things, whether they're cooperatives in your case, Wendy, or whether they're, you know, for-profit companies. Yeah. Or the in-between company that's, that's both, right? Yeah. The, uh, where, where uh, you know, it might be a big firm that's, that's going to do the big capital, but the investments coming from the community is cooperative to be the partner. Right. These are options that are that are uh, 
starting to arise more and more. And, and sometimes big corporation actually has, you know, some fundamental values that shift more toward that triple bottom line business model. Yeah, this one makes us more money, but this one is more sustainable, whether it's a, we're, we're going to measure it. Not only do we, you know, feed families, but we also want to make sure we aren't killing the earth and we need to find a way to be um, somewhat supportive socially, right? Yeah. In terms of some of the examples that exist, I think, you know, before before we started this chat, Wendy and Rob, I think, Rob, you were mentioning, like, probably a big scalable example is is the, the, the potential building of, the, of the, the wind farm on the west side of St. John and the different ways in which that, that company has talked about engaging the community, um, perhaps looking at forms of community investments. Mm-hmm. I don't know how far along they are on that, on that path. Um, but it's almost like amplifying and talking about some of those, those scalable examples that we see, um, yeah. a different way of doing things. A hundred percent correct. And there's a good example of a private corporation looking to, to have a, a strong community stake in, in an outcome. And interestingly enough, uh, as I recall the development of that story, uh, MB Power sort of poo-pooed the idea. And so with St. John Energy, he said, this makes us money. This is good for the city, for us as a company and for the city of St. John, much the same way I now own a heat pump based on the Kingston Peninsula, but rented from St. John Energy because they're making money when I save energy. There's a business model that is working right now that is building both the economy and the environment. Yeah, and it's if not I, a trade-off. It, it's it's a dichotomy. Yeah, and if I can add to that, you know, and I agree, and I, I go back to what you said earlier. Um, Rob, about the idea, and, and you as well, Mark, the idea isn't either or. The idea is, you know, the best approach. And the best approach, obviously, and in, in what everybody is saying these days, the 99%, anyhow, is that we need to make sure that people, planet, and profit are all part of the formula. We all have to eat. And uh, so it's the business model that's shifting and it has to shift um, because we don't have a a lot more time uh, to fool around with this. We we know this. And, you know, young people in particular, this is their future. Um, You know, they want a different kind of world and they want a different kind of economy and they want people to be included in that and fairness and equity and all of all of those sorts of things that, you know, when all you're talking about is profit, which is basically, you know, what the oil industry does, they don't care about people and profit, or excuse me, and the planet. It certainly doesn't appear that way in the decisions that they make. But people do care about that. And that's, you know, we see this in the divest movement. Um, Billions of dollars have been divested out of fossil fuels in the last few years. And, you know, I just wanted to also mention sort of the investment end of things, because, you know, that's a lot of whatever economy um, uh, rotates on. 
And so, you know, there are community investment funds. And so this wind farm that you're mentioning, um, examples in Nova Scotia, we have the most amazing community economic development investment program in the country. You really have to give New Brunswick kudos for this. Um, If people invest in a community economic development project like renewable energy, they get 50% of their money back. And, you know, they're RRSP eligible, so people can self-direct their RRSPs into it. And when we look right now at what's happening, just RRSPs alone in this province, about $680 million leaves New Brunswick in RRSP investments alone. 2% of that comes back to the economy. And so if we, and and people would much prefer to invest their money into local renewable energy and all these other kinds of projects that take, you know, people and planet into consideration and the quality of life and, and our environment. And so these are the kinds of tools that are becoming increasingly available and much more appealing you know, again, not just to, to millennials, absolutely to them. But, you know, I'm talking to people of all ages that are saying, we want to build our local economies. We want to create community wealth instead of sending all our money out of the country, and at least out of the province. You know, there was a study done recently by the Center for Local Prosperity that um, showed that 45 cents of every dollar spent in New Brunswick leaves our economy. And if we were to shift the leakage rate in Atlantic Canada by just 10%, that that would create 43,000 jobs. So, you know, these are strategies that just haven't been given, as Rob mentioned, you know, the, the big corporations and these powerful corporations have a lot more resources to put into the argument or their case, whereas, you know, these smaller initiatives don't. But regardless of that, the, they're catching on and people are tired of the old way. And, you know, there is a new way coming, um, you know, whether people realize it or not um it's not stopping it's like a tsunami uh, that has hit and it's showing up in um how people spend their money consuming dollars you know people are making much more cautious uh choices around where things are coming from and the environmental considerations um and you know in business structures and in where they're putting their investment dollars and you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's happening. So it's, it's not an argument anymore of either or, or, but I also want to just say that we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. This is really a matter of tweaking priorities. You know, when you look at some of the imbalances that currently exist for our small businesses, you know, there's a difference between what large corporations pay. Large corporations pay something like an average of 17.7% in taxes compared to small businesses that pay 26%. You know, these are very real challenges and have um, very real implications. There's a ton of money. We know, you know, the Panama Papers showed that how many hundreds of million dollars are being sheltered in offshore tax havens by large corporations. Again, this is all money that's leaking out of our economy 
that is within the control of, you know, government to be able to do something about. And so there's ways that we can fix the economy without significantly impacting on um, the way things are now, just making them more fair and creating other options and giving them a fair playing field to work in. I'll add to Wendy's uh, point because, you know, we worried about a level of business efficiency. And I'll, I, I'm using business rather than economic, uh, though economists haven't always been good at this uh, because we just deal with formulas. But there's a business efficiency, perhaps, to having a potato that is only destined to the restaurant market. And the problem becomes that that potato can't be easily redirected to the consumer market. In fact, it can't be. And what did we see happen? We're seeing potatoes being discarded. Luckily, some of them, while they can't be repackaged for the consumer market, can be repackaged for the food bank market. And so they don't entirely get wasted. But it was, it was because, you know, you pick them in Florenceville or wherever, being one of the largest potato producers, you put them on a truck, they go into uh, shipping, they go into plants in Quebec, Ontario, wherever they go, they get organized for the, 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 the restaurant market, which is a different kind of packaging to what the consumer market is. And all of a sudden it gets shipped from there back at the restaurants who no longer needed it. So while you had a flood of potatoes in the market, consumers didn't see a decrease in the price of potatoes in the normal way we would say, okay, we'll shift our consumption to more potatoes and say less bread, less flour for whatever reason. We just saw a steady price because they couldn't redirect it. We saw the same thing. Um, flour became increasingly scarce. And what it ended up was the, the dye or the paint or the coloring that they used on red rose flour, they didn't have, they couldn't get the bags for it. So it was, well, you know, now we're going to ship in a white bag and then you can get, well, it's flour. I never bought the bag. I bought the flour inside the bag. And I think COVID-19 exposed some of those supply chain issues that, that you know, I'm taking back to my economics class to, to, to say, you know, what defines a good and, and, you know, even where it was destined defines that good you know and then the wholesale slaughter of some pigs that you know we've got to get rid of these pigs why well we can't get them to restaurants so you know while we're in a pandemic situation god god forbid it's it's ever going to be the zombies because we're dead right it's pretty crazy yeah, so where, where do you see that sort of connecting into that larger conversation that we're having just around the supply chain issues like that? I think it exposes some of our gaps and it's going to require great minds to start thinking about that. And, and that's going to build our local economies. I mean, you know, why is it our farmer has to, you know, enter into a long-term contract, get it onto a truck and that truck will take it off to like, well, how do we build a better system that gets it to, you know, we can supply people here. This doesn't mean we don't supply the restaurant market, but how could they, how could the situation be so rigid that we couldn't redirect it into other markets where it's needed fairly easily? It just becomes a shutdown. And it's like, we can't even reconsider how it might work because this is the way it works. 
And we build rules and uh, there's not just the culture of practice, there are rules and regulations built into how this will get done. But, but potatoes aren't getting delivered to people who really could be using potatoes. I, I find that sort of, that exposure, it's, it, it, this is, we don't need to think about China and our supply market with China, which had a plexiglass issue. Hockey rinks couldn't be built because there was no plexiglass because China had shut down early. Um, this is, you know, right in our home province, we're having problems organizing this stuff mm. because how we've set up our rules that, you know, bought into the, in the scale argument without any consideration for the safety valves, the ultimate purpose, which is, you know, people have to eat, whether it's in restaurants or elsewhere. Yeah, and I think it is. Wendy, thank you. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think that that's where we're seeing um, uh, the concern, but also the innovation is uh, in our food Mm -hmm. system and the the supply chain. Um, You know, they've uh, rallied, like a lot of the small farms and all kinds of different organizations have rallied together. And uh, you know, they're really being innovative and collaborative in trying to address that. But everybody is concerned about food right now. And they're seeing the weakness in this uh, existing, you know, all of these things that Rob has just talked about. And uh, I think, you know, the other um, word that comes into play throughout this whole thing is innovation. You know, we've tossed that word around for a long time. And you know, to a large degree, it's landed in the technology end of things, which, you know, certainly plays a big role. But there's also some really amazing innovation happening at local levels where people are looking specifically at this issue very seriously, I think, for the first time of our um, supply chain. And, and your, from your perspective, Wendy, um, and sir, you partially answered a question that I was that I was going to dive into with you based on what Rob was saying is... Um, where do the, the the cooperatives and the smaller businesses that you work with do they do they benefit from rethinking how we manage supply chains and and you know how global our our, our export focus is? Absolutely, and I think that they they're really important players right now. And um, for a long time, I, I don't think they've had a voice at the table. Um, but they're definitely there now. They've uh, very clearly identified where the gaps are, but also what the solutions are. And uh, so, you know, they, I think that they're feeling more empowered than they were before. Now, we need to be able to support that. You know, there was a really interesting project in New Brunswick um, that's taken place over the last couple of years, developing the supply chain for getting local food from um, small farms to institutions, um, government is in hospitals and schools and, and so on. And again, on this idea of just a small shift in the procurement spending of government would make a huge difference. And uh, so, you know, they looked at at everything from, you know, what would it take for planning for small farmers through to storage of, of supplies, um, distribution and packaging and so on. And the capacity is all here um, for us to do it. And, and it is happening. 
Um, but again, there's got to be some commitment by government to supporting that kind of action. And I, I do think it's beginning to shift and more so now. But there's been a lot of barriers that these groups have faced um, in order to, to collectively sort of get their voices heard and to be able to move forward on strategies. They're strapped. You talk to our small farmers right now and they are they're living poverty wages, um, even less, and, and yet very committed to, you know, getting food out to people. So we need to, you know, continue to support them in any way that we can and not be thinking about, you know, the rules and the regulations. They can pivot very quickly. That's the other interesting thing. Um, an important aspect of, you know, our, our smaller farms and smaller producers is they are able to pivot much more quickly than big corporations do and to respond to you know, needs as they emerge. Yeah, it, it makes me, you know, bring this back around because I know you guys have been really generous with your time and I wouldn't mind, you know, as we, as we you know, start to close here, um, thinking back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, for me, a lot of it, and I've heard a lot of people say this it's like with some of these i think you're right it's like it's not a value shift some of these values have been changing for decades but it feels like action is tougher right and it feels like over the last couple of months whether you're talking about um you know the the you know the influence of of the black lives matter movement in in this in the city and and how we treat, you know, here in St. John, but it's true all around the region and how we treat minority communities and how we're integrating immigrants into our workplaces, but also into our broader communities. Um, if we're talking about environmental questions and, and getting away from these polarized discussions of it's either economy or environment, um, or Wendy, we're talking about restructuring the way we think about how we run companies so that conversations around cooperative models and social enterprises aren't, aren't just marginal conversations. They're, they're things that have momentum that move us forward. Do you both feel like we mean it now? Can I put it that crassly that we, we actually could start seeing some real shifts in the way we operate in the province socially, economically? Yeah. And um, yeah, I would love to answer that first. I am so excited by what I see. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been decades working on, you know, these same sort of community economic development issues. And I have never seen such an opportunity, so much motivation and interest and cooperation um, and sense of empowerment. It's, uh, it, it really warms my heart to think I'm, I'm on my last year before retirement. And I feel like this is just a great time. <laughs> it's a great time to be leaving things to this, you know, younger generation. Um, because, you know, as unfortunate as it is that it took a virus, I always thought it was going to be climate change that did this, but um, it turns out it was a virus. But there's always good that comes from the bad. And, um, you know, I just really believe that things are going to move forward in a much better way in the future. I'll say um, I moved here in 96. I've never wanted to move back to Ontario. I've always wanted more of my family to move here and my friends. Uh, 
And I see we've got incredible opportunity right now, especially with this sort of, you don't have to work in the place in which the building, they put a building in the center of Toronto so you could mid-level manage. I see those as great opportunities uh, for the province. Uh, Wendy, you, well, you, you're always a, uh, uh, a champion in this regard. And, and I remember first meeting you and going, wow, I'm enthused now. Um, so your enthusiasm sir, and hope, I think, uh, is infectious. Uh, I was especially uh, impressed when, when people like you were saying the government is starting to get around the table. I, I, I think we're starting to... Economics is a, is a social construct. We can do whatever we want. I mean, it, it's all about how we make it work. And uh, then the question becomes, is it working? And, uh, you know, my students are pressing us. We're pressing us in the city with high poverty rates. Is it working? We're looking at First Nations issues in Canada. You know, we went through Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And, uh, okay, so now we feel bad and we know about, you know, there were residential schools when we weren't taught that. I wasn't taught that as a kid. Uh, all of my learning, my kids can't believe I never knew about this. And yet I grew up near Brantford, where one of the last residential schools was still operating. Um there's a lot of hope. It used to be that you would look. I was just playing with my phone and, and doing the calculations. You, it used to be you would look with admiration at the billionaire. Whole, there's a measure of success, bar none. They are a billionaire. I have a great job. Imagine a job that pays $100,000 a day, not a year, which to most New Brunswickers is out of their reach, $100,000 a year. Imagine that $100,000 a day job. It takes 10,000 days, 10,000 days to earn a billion. It takes nearly 27 and a half years. Most people's working careers at $100,000 a day to be there. Who needs that? And, and, and that's, I think, people saying, gee, this tool, it's not working properly. There is a problem with it. You know, and so where that used to be admiration, I think there's questions. And when you see the damages, you know, it's not like the billionaires are throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at solving COVID-19 and making sure, you know, the, the, the weird media that tells us, no, you don't need a mask. Come on, fight against these. That's not happening. They aren't pitching in. The, the, the Panama Papers, uh, you know, just pay your taxes so we can get the things done. You know, how can the city of St. John, how can the city of St. John, with its industrial base, one of the richest companies in Canada not be having enough taxes to make it work? How can we be in this situation? And then worse yet, how can we be in that situation? And when we go and say, no, we really should be getting those taxes, have a provincial government that finds ways to lower property assessments. So those taxes are, how do we, and people, it's a mix of optimism and pissed offness. 
that is going to change this. It's like, you don't have to accept yeah. it the way it is. You can make it different. And, you know, there are a few of us out there that are, there's a lot of us actually out there working on that. Uh, and Wendy, I love your message, you know, and, and I'm so happy as as you feel, you know, as you enter in retirement, and I still, I will re-echo no, um, but the promise that there's a group of people ready to take that baton because they get it and they want to reimagine that world and it's a world you're looking forward to living in. And it's, it's interesting, Rob, because like you, you brought something up of, of the, the difference between working with something and kind of protesting against it and agitating for change. Because uh, Wendy, you probably don't know, but there's some really interesting conversations uh, in, on Twitter, in particular in St. John, over the last couple of weeks that have focused on a lot of these social justice questions around Black Lives Matter, around um, you know the distribution of corporate power and wealth, and um, you know our questions of our institutions around government and police, right? And and uh, I know I've just covered a really broad swath and like. 20 seconds, but quite literally, Wendy and Rob, you might know this from being on Twitter over the last couple of weeks um, or not, but um, the, these are oddly some of these really big questions we've been, especially the younger people have been tackling during this pandemic. And so I think of your point, Wendy, around uh, it's, it's unfortunate that it took this, uh, but it really feels like it's not coincidental. Um, and, and in the end, you know, the, the, the change won't necessarily all come about by overthrowing the institutions, right? No. It's, no. it's more, you mentioned earlier, Wendy, around, around tweaking um, and modifying and, and individual and community power that can just push things forward, right, and on whatever it is that you're working on, right? Exactly. It's innovating. And, and in some sense, it's, it's, it's not just social. We often talk about social innovation and social uh, enterprise, and, and we really sort of mean businessy kind of stuff. But it's innovation in the policies we set. It's innovation in the joint social norm that because you know we love public health care in Canada. We can see the benefits, and you you go into the states and you start to see they don't get it. They just don't really see how it could work because they've never been exposed to seeing how it might work. And, uh, you know, we're getting more and more experience with, with being able to invest in our local economies. Uh, we're building those cooperatives even without that. You know, I'm a, I'm a member. I don't know. I think you guys might be too, Mark. A uh, member of the Kingston Farmers Market. I bought a share there. I share. I can sell it back someday, but I bought into my community. And I get two free breakfast, uh, one free breakfast ticket once a year, except this year where we are going to have breakfast. You know, I don't, that's not the, the payoff is that the market exists. And that's a way for people that are my neighbors and my friends and my potential friends, because I didn't know them until I went there and I stopped at the booth and I saw that they do some great boutique work or I never knew you could make that kind of food out of these things because I'm not exposed to that culture. And that that idea of we're, we're, we're the pandemic weirdly, and, and it's got its own issues and it's a big health issue. Um, but it's given us a chance. I think, you know, I agree with you, Wendy, I thought it would be climate change, but I don't think we can now conclude that, well, the climate change 
is not coming. This was a big wave. A pandemic is giving us that warning shot. How are your systems changing? Because it doesn't matter what we do. There's some pretty rough changes coming up ahead. There's only one way we're going to solve those rough changes. And that is somehow we're going to work as communities if we want society to, to exist after this. Otherwise, you know, we will hide in our woods and we'll, you know, practice our scout craft and guide craft and hopefully we'll, you know, we'll make it and the warring tribes won't go at each other. Right. But, but I think there's a lot of opportunity and uh, we can do this as that sort of wake up call. How do we build that better policy that's more resilient, that helps us work together and encourages it? And those are economic questions. They're social questions. They're health questions. Yep. They're the big questions. They're the questions that, you know, it's kind of why we're here, right? Well, thank you very much, uh, Wendy and Rob. Wendy, is there anything you wanted to add before we, we closed off? Well, we covered a, certainly a broad range of uh, topics in our discussion. Thanks uh, so much, Mark. I guess uh, the only thing, if you don't mind, I would add that um, I produced a blog recently, a very comprehensive blog called How to Build an Economy for the 99%. You can Google it and find it. But in the blog, one of the things that I did was I tried uh, to really look at what are tried and proven solutions to the economic problem that we have now that could be implemented without costing taxpayers one more cent by simply making some of these small shifts that we talked about. And uh, it is not that hard to do it. It really is a matter of government will at this point. And um, I agree with Rob, you know, that everybody is looking for um, a new way forward and they wanna be part of the solution. So, yeah, if you want more details, check us out at uh, cecnb.ca, how to build an economy for the 99%. Well, before I let you go, though, Wendy, because I can't let you go simply on that tease, give us a couple of highlights from it. Sure. Well, um, there's five solutions, and uh, they start out with building a strong foundation for a new economy and not using the GDP, but um, other uh indexes that are used around the world, things like the Gross National Happiness Index and so on. Uh, Moving on to looking at things like a fair tax system, you know, there was um, a time when corporations and uh, individuals contributed fairly to, you know, our collective pot, you know, today um, it's three times individuals put in. So looking at things like we talked about with collecting, you know, offshore tax havens and and fair taxes uh, for small businesses versus large corporations, different banking models. You know, we stopped using the Public Bank of Canada back in the 70s for some unknown reason where we were borrowing interest-free for everything from building the Trans-Canada Highway through to um, public health care. And the government started borrowing from large banks and our national debt has grown. We way, pay way more in interest than we do on the debt itself. Um, so we could go back to borrowing from um, our own public bank. And uh, of course, collective and public ownership of institutions that currently 
get um, all of the tenders go out to large corporations for everything from cafeteria services in schools, you know, to nursing homes. These could all be owned collectively, community owned, and where the profits, um, you know, that come from it are shared amongst the people who help actually create them. So those are just some teasers. Yeah, and, and the and it comes back to that issue around um, strengthening local local supply chains and local yeah. providers of goods and services. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, totally. Great. Well, thanks very much, Wendy. Thanks very much, Rob. Thank you. And and I keep saying this because I've had so many rich conversations uh, through this podcast over the last several weeks, and I I, uh, I keep saying I'm going to bring uh, people back for a part two, and and uh, I hope to do the same thing with you. Uh, just because I know these kinds of conversations that we have, while they're a bit long, they um, we could just keep having them. Yeah, yeah, they're great. So Thanks thank you very much, Mark. All right, so we'll talk to you soon. Bye now. You've been listening to Huddle Home Office, and thank you, Wendy, and thank you, Rob, for such great conversation. And you can read Wendy's piece, "How to Build an Economy for the 99%" on the Huddle website at www.huddle.today. Now, Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legere, Cherise Letson, and Tyler McLean. And you can listen to Home Office on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. There you can hear this episode, and you can also listen to um, the other episodes that we've produced in the last few months. We'll talk to you next week.